here we are in a region of uh, 22 Arab countries, one Iran, one Israel, one Turkey. Uh, these uh, major factors constitute major forces. They themselves are forceful and complex phenomena. <clears throat> Saudi Arabia is in some ways uh, likened more to a, a continent than a country. If you take the maritime boundaries with the land ones, it has 13 neighbors. Iran has 11. And so here we are uh, sitting in the room of a deliberative body in a country uh, that prides itself on having just two neighbors uh, in terms of Mexico and Canada, and one could not ask for nicer neighbors than those two. But nicer still is the Atlantic and the uh, Pacific. Uh, but in reality, we, we have far more than two neighbors. We had a vice presidential candidate um, about 11 years ago who was queried on her foreign relations experience in uh, paraphrase her, she said, well, I, I'm involved in foreign relations every day, certainly thinking. When I wake up, I look straight out at the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, Russia, because she was from Alaska. And of course, if you lived in South Florida, you'd be cognizant of the uh, issues and challenges uh, rooted in Haiti and Cuba uh, and elsewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. So. Here we have, if you just focus on Arabia and the Gulf, and uh, the eastern Arabian side or the western side of the Gulf, uh, you have uh, seven Arab countries and one non-Arab country, namely Iran. If you focus on the 22 Arab countries, uh, a minority or neighbors of Iran. All six of the GCC countries, very quickly, Bahrain, Oman, uh, Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, border Iran in one way or another, mainly in terms of a maritime uh, boundary. Uh, the exception is Iraq, uh, which has both a landward and a maritime uh, boundary with uh, Iran. But if we limit that focus to just those geographical constants, uh, yes, we would leave this room enlightened, uh, but with not much more than the obvious. Uh, there are several non-GCC Arab countries that are intricately, intensely, and extensively involved with these two countries of Iraq and Iran, and that's namely Jordan and Syria. And to a bit further degree, distant uh, Yemen and add Lebanon uh, for good measure. And then the capital of the League of Arab States is in none of these countries, but rather Egypt. Uh, so all of those have uh, a stake in the outcome of what transpires in the days ahead, as they have had outcomes and incomes, in some cases, to play on words, uh, before this imbroglio. 
the region is one of two kinds of oil, turmoil, and the other kind, uh, which both uh, complicate the area and make it far more important than would otherwise be the case uh, where it bereft of the hydrocarbon source and force that powers every economy. Uh, it gets a bad rap in this country, and that's largely for domestic political reasons, linked to geopolitical reasons, uh, anchored at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, uh, where there's a small country that has enormous power in the United States and influence in the halls uh, beyond uh, this room. But we are looking at something more than complex and complicated. Uh, it's timely, it's relevant, and in many ways it's urgent. It's wrapped around issues of war and peace, of grand strategy, micro-strategy, and my own terminology, media strategy, around economics, geoeconomics, uh, whether a country is rich or poor, large or small, new or old, every single country's economy is powered by hydrocarbon fuels. And so one can falsely rest on one's laurels when you read that the United States is no longer dependent upon this region and therefore need not consider it as much as we have before. Uh, but this would be na naivete on steroids. And I believe uh, Dr. Cordesman and Colonel DeRoche and Tom Matera, who is a fourth specialist on these issues, uh, will underscore. And if we leave with that reality, we will have gained more than before we walked into this room. Um, I would like to allow Colonel DeRoche to come on now. This is the first time we've done this, so if it's not smooth, my apologies. Uh, but he's half a world away from us and in a different time zone, uh, but he's right there at the tip of the spear with many of, of the issues. Uh, can we make it possible for David DeRoche to come on now? I can see you. Everybody's looking good. Hello. Uh, appreciate you coming out today. Thank you for coming out. I, uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, this is my contact information. I always have to emphasize that I don't speak for the United States government on, uh, on any issue. So, uh, you know, quote me freely, but don't quote me as a government expert. Next slide, please. Okay. There you go. When you look at how Iran fights, the, the first thing that's important is that Iran uh, really doesn't seek to dominate areas. I'm sure it'd like to, but it realizes that it doesn't have the ability to do it, and it can achieve its strategic aims by disrupting things. Um, and this, in part, was a long way towards explaining uh, why Iran uh, spends a fraction of what its uh, adversaries spend, but it manages to achieve a degree of strategic success that eludes it, which is, quite frankly, 
for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the other countries to prosper, the Gulf has to be as placid as a uh, parking lot uh, at midnight at a supermarket. But for Iran to achieve its strategic aims generally, it uh, can just disrupt this, which is far cheaper. Bill. So I wrote this uh, short little study on it, which is available online, um, uh, to kind of explain this. And if you have time, I'd urge you to look at it. It was uh, designed, I, I really wrote it with uh, a military audience in mind, which means that it, uh, the, the U.S. Army writing standard is comprehensible to somebody with a fourth grade education. So it should be good. Bill, one of the key things that Iran does in order to achieve it is that it doesn't attack things directly. It uses proxy attacks. Bill, it also um, uh, tends to disrupt shipping, which is a lot cheaper than confronting navies. People have asked me if the Iranian Navy can defeat the U.S. Navy, and the answer is that's an irrelevant question. All the Iranian Navy has to do to achieve its strategic goals is to make insurance clerks in London nervous, Bill. And then famously, uh, to achieve their goals, uh, it takes hostages, which is coercive, but they have a record of success in getting what they want for it. Uh, the most recent hostage exchange, uh, we exchanged the student for what appears to be a, a trained uh, intelligence asset. So there is an asymmetrical uh, value to taking hostages from Iran. Next slide, please. So this shows, um, this is a view of modern warfare in which you have two circles. The irregular circle is on the right, uh, your, the left as you face it, and on the right as you face it is the conventional warfare circle. In the middle is the uh, domain of hybrid warfare. Quite a bit has been written about hybrid warfare. I would just point out that the uh, American uh, realm of expertise is in conventional forces, uh, demonstrated most recently by the destruction of Saddam Hussein's army twice. <laughs> We're very good at this. And uh, unfortunately, we've come to the conclusion that uh, the rest of the world has, has decided that there's two ways to fight the Americans. Uh, you can fight them uh, irregularly or you can fight them stupidly. And um, the circle to the left, to include the hybrid, is where Iran traditionally has operated. Uh, and they've operated very effectively because, uh, first off, they, uh, they've uh, managed to harness all the implements of national power. They've chosen uh, battle spaces where we are weak uh, against usually countries that are ineffective at uh, governance. And they've operated below a level that a democracy can uh, acquire a consensus for a conventional military response. Next slide, please. This is another way of looking at hybrid warfare. You have four steps of warfare uh, that rise up in intensity and in uh, attribution to a government. Uh, so number one is political subversion. Number two is proxy sanction activity. I would argue that these are the areas where Iran has chosen to put the majority of its effort. Uh, number three and four, intervention and co coercive deterrence. That's where the United States tends to operate. And basically, um, because of that very focus and the relative levels of intensity, um, the United States has and its partners have to spend a lot of money and expend a lot of resources when it tries to operate in this spectrum. Whereas Iran, lower intensity, lower levels of attribution, generally is more effective uh, at achieving its asymmetric uh, strategic aims in the United States. Next slide, please. This shows distribution of Shia Muslims throughout the region, and uh, the darker the green, the, the more the Shia, and basically 
you can overlay this with areas of Iranian proxy activity or areas of support for Iran. And what you'll find, it brings you to the conclusion that this Iranian model of subversion uh, is effective, but it's only effective in countries that have large Shia populations and also have weaker fragmented governments such as Lebanon and uh, Yemen. So um, this is where they've chosen to, to make their effort. In other areas, uh, most notably you see the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, they've been opposed uh, forcefully and violently. Um, they have not reached the same degree of success, but they make the same effort because they know that uh, they have uh, under or not just the doctrine of Belia Fakih, but also uh, their military uh, approach of, of um, asymmetric uh, proxy warfare allows them to stir the pot at a relatively low cost to themselves and occupy a disproportionate amount of their adversaries' resources. Next slide, please. Okay, one of the ways that they've chosen to apply power asymmetrically is through the use of ballistic missiles instead of piloted aircraft. This has a number of benefits. The first one is um, piloted aircraft uh, involve pilots who are very expensive to train. Um, to produce a number of pilots uh, basically costs the same. There's there's a um, uh, you know to cost pilots cost to train pilots costs millions of dollars, and there's not that much difference in training one pilot or training 300 pilots. They all cost more or less the same. But with missiles, once you tool a factory and assembly line, the cost of producing an incrementally next missile goes down. The second advantage is that missiles, um, because they are not manned, they don't have a highly trained officer corps that, can be, that can't be shifted easily around, and so it's not subject to coups. So it, it's not lost on uh, the Iranian leadership uh, that, you know, Hafez al-Assad was an Air Force officer, uh, Hosni Mubarak was an Air Force officer, um, Arab regimes during the time of coups when, you know, the 50s, 60s, to a certain extent, 70s, they learned how to manage army officers from overthrowing the government by moving them around, by building parallel armies. But because of the cost of training Air Force officers, they couldn't do the same techniques on Air Force officers, and so consequently you saw a lot of coups coming out of the Air Force. So if you have ballistic missiles, you can minimize that possibility. Now, the missiles we think were used in the most recent attacks are the uh, one-fourth from the left, the Zulfigar, which is basically an upgraded version of the Fajr 110, which is intended to knock off of the Scud, and then the Qiyam, uh, which uh, is the one-fifth from the left, uh, as you look at it. Next slide, please. This is a, a picture of the Qiyam on display in Tehran. It's a very distinctive missile, uh, most notably because it doesn't have fins. Um, it's also been exported to the Houthis and fired at Saudi Arabia. They basically changed the paint job on it, given a different name to say that they invented it. Next slide, please. <laughs> this is a, a weapon of warfare that is cruel, uh, that is uh, indiscriminate, that has spread terror around uh, Saudi Arabia and Riyadh, uh, and it's seen with a, an Iranian missile which landed at Riyadh International Airport in 2017. Um, this is the Qiyam missile that was recovered uh, from Riyadh International Airport, uh, and it, it appears to be uh, not necessarily the workhorse of the Iranian inventory, but it's one of the most modern ones, and I think that when all is done, we'll find out that a large number of the missiles fired in Iran 
or in Iraq, uh, were of the Qiyam variant. Now, Iran also operates at sea, so if we take a look at the next slide, uh, we'll take a look at some of their asymmetric methods of sea. This is a naval limpet mine, such as was used over the summer. Uh, this is an Iranian one shown at a weapons, ship, a weapons uh, uh, fair uh, in Tabriz. Um, it has a shape charge, and then the little holes at the bottom there, you drill and bolt it onto the ship. You can also use it in conjunction with magnets. When it's detonated, the shape charge inside breaches the hole of the ship. Next slide. Uh, what you see here is the damage caused by a limpet mine on the left. This is to the Kokura Courageous. This was the uh, uh, mining incident in the Strait of Hormuz in June. And on the right, you have uh, a limpet mine in place, built. Here you see a Revolutionary Guard Navy crew trying to remove that limpet mine from the ship so that they can uh, continue uh, non-attribution, uh, you know, obscure the origins of this, and thus not provoke a reaction in keeping with that doctrine of hybrid warfare that I mentioned earlier, Bill. They were not completely successful, so you see here that one of the uh, uh, grips that held the mine to the ship's hull remained in place. You could also see the outline where the uh, mine was in place. Now, it looks as though they were trying to send a message here rather than actually sink the ship because the mines were in place above the waterline. So normally you place the mine below the waterline to uh, damage the hull, flood the, flood the hull, and then sink the ship. So, again, this sort of uh, asymmetric low-level thing is designed to send a message at sea. Next slide. Finally, talking about hostages, uh, basically uh, the taking of hostages is in the, uh, it's baked into the DNA of this Iranian regime. Uh, it first, uh, you know, rose to prominence and uh, rose to and remains in the American uh, psyche for the uh, uh, taking the U.S. Embassy hostages and holding them for uh, over a year. This doomed the presidency of Jimmy Carter, uh, was a national embarrassment for the United States, and also spurred the formation of the United States Special Operations Command. Uh, so this was taken seriously by the United States. Bill, David Dodge, former president of American University of Beirut, was kidnapped by, um, uh, this is a model, one of the early kidnappings in Lebanon, uh, 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 Lebanese Shia uh, people who uh, formed into the group that would be later known as Hezbollah kidnapped him. Uh, as a retaliation for the disappearance of some Iranian diplomats in Beirut. Uh, he was flown to Tehran, incarcerated in Evan prison, uh, before he was released. Uh, as a result, we think, of Bashar al-Assad's intervention, or Hafez al-Assad's intervention, quite frankly, because he saw it as an embarrassment to his regime. But, uh, you know, of course, that led into the whole uh, 80s hostage-taking in Lebanon, which included a U.S. Marine Corps uh, colonel who was um, assigned to the U.N. mission, and the CIA station chief, uh, William Francis Buckley. Next slide. And of course, this continues. Jason Rezian, the Washington Post's former Tehran correspondent who still writes on Iranian affairs, was uh, held for a number of years until he was exchanged. Uh, the Iranian regime uh, has, by this simple uh, expedient, uh, they've shifted from Americans to dual nationals. Uh, you know, some Americans, some other citizens, and uh, they're quite unapologetic for this. So when uh, um, 
Jeff, uh, when Zarif was asked about people being held there uh, by a news reporter on his last visit to the United States, he immediately countered with, well, you're holding some of our people uh, to include folks who've committed terrorist acts in the United States or who've been arrested on uh, weapons export charges and uh, basically said, let's make a deal. So these uh, students, uh, you know, there's a woman, a British uh, academic on the hunger strike in Iranian jail. Uh, the Iranian regime sees them as a way to recover intelligence assets or to get financial payouts. Next slide. Let's talk a little bit about how deterrence is working and weigh it into the um, most recent uh, events, uh, the missile attacks in Iraq in the aftermath of the uh, assassination of Qasem Soleimani. So these are various uh, military uh, steps that can be taken uh, that have been taken by uh, Iranian proxy forces in Iraq, most notably, but also in other places like Lebanon. Uh, even Bahrain, in some instances, there have been off-road landmines in place in Bahrain uh, that have been traced back to IRGC origins. So when you look at these various means here, some of these are more attributable, some of them are less attributable, some of them fall into the uh, military category of harassment attack, and some are... Um, uh, more uh, full-on military operations build. Basically, uh, the Iranian regime has calculated uh, what the line of response will be from the Western democracies and its partners, and they generally stick to the level of action that is below that line of response. They know that if there is an overt response that comes from the United States particularly, we are a responsive democracy. There will be uh, concern that the United States is going to war. There will be public protests. There will be a questioning of our motives. Uh, every fact will be questioned. Uh, and this, this is the case regardless of who's in the White House. Um, it's just that, you know, the, there is a... Uh, uh, the Western track record is that they don't want to be involved in here. And, of course, our partners, none of our partners in the region are democracies or functioning democracies by any uh, measure. Uh, and so uh, what so are reluctant to respond, and Iran has taken efforts to calibrate their activities to remain below that threshold of responsibility. Um, what's happened recently is that that line, that threshold of response, has been called into question by the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and particularly by the killing of Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandes. To a certain extent, I would argue that the death of Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandes, the uh, leader of Qatar uh, Hezbollah, is more significant than the death of Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was a, an effective officer leading a military organization that was part of the Iranian state. When he le leaves the scene, he will be replaced by a deputy by another officer who will simply continue to implement the Iranian national strategy. He may do it more effectively, he may do it less effectively, but there won't be that much of a cutoff. But, but uh, Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandes represented one of the greatest successes of this Iranian proxy strategy in that not only was he leader of, I would argue, Iranian-directed militia, uh, but he also managed to embed himself into the Iraqi state. And in the past, that had given uh, proxies operating on behalf of Iran a level of immunity against American Western reprisal. Bill. And so, Bill. And so what we've seen is that the line of response effectively has been lowered, uh, and the line of attribution may also be lowered as well. So we know that 
certain attacks that have been permissible, and it's worth noting that uh, the U.S. government, in the aftermath of the uh, rocket attacks on Qatar and Hezbollah, that then kicked off the embassy seize that then uh, preceded the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, said that there had been 11 rocket attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq. None of these had even been reported, so they were below the line of response and even below the line of of protest and threshold. That line of response has been um, lowered, not just for uh, what sort of military actions are tolerable or provoke a response, but I would argue also uh, for people who have uh, achieved a sort of dual status in national governments, such as the Lebanese government, and we've seen this on the uh, economic front, where Hezbollah members of the Lebanese parliament have been uh, subject to the same economic sanctions as terrorists. In the past, the U.S. government has hesitated to do that, and the killing of Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. And so I hope I haven't gone on too long. Next slide. Um, and I don't know if we have the ability to take questions, but if you have them, I'd be welcome. I'd welcome to take it, or you could just give them to uh, uh, Dr. Anthony or Pat, and we'll go from there. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Thank you, Dave, very much. Uh, uh, Matt and greetings from Riyadh. That was a great introduction. Uh, and, and technology worked for us, uh, alhamdulillah. Uh, Dr. Anthony Cordesman uh, is one of these rare individuals who is more comfortable when there is a minimal amount of uh, introduction. And in his case, he's not being elusive or evasive. Uh, his record is, is out there. I just Google Anthony Cordesman there and uh, maybe have a Band-Aid on your finger because you'll get blisters uh, going up and down trying to find where does this list of publications end. Uh, no, he's been voluminous and we, we've all learned immensely from him. Uh, he and I have gone to the region together at least twice, if not uh, three times, uh, especially during the Iran-Iraq war. And uh, he held the esteem then of uh, members of Congress, uh, chiefs of staff, uh, foreign policy, defense advisors, along with their legislative and communications affairs uh, directors. He was great to travel with. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Anthony Cordesman. I think that we really face two major issues in dealing with this crisis. One is the one we're focusing on, which is a basic change in the nature of warfare, not only in Iran, but I think in the Gulf, the Middle East, and the best part of the world, which is a focus on asymmetric warfare. Another is the extent to which the United States will maintain its presence and its commitments in the Gulf and in this region. And I think that as we discuss this, one thing that everybody should pay close attention to is whether we end up, rather surprisingly, watching the U.S. reduce its presence to minimal levels, lose Iraq, and essentially see a major Iranian strategic victory without having had any major exchange in asymmetric warfare. Now, I have put together a presentation on staying in the Gulf, which looks at some of these issues 
and particularly the reasons to stay. But let me shift to asymmetric warfare. One thing to remember is that the use of asymmetric warfare interacts with all of the challenges in the region. It is not something dictated or shaped by Iran alone. It also basically is an exploitation of ways that you can take the divisions and weaknesses within individual regimes and the tensions between Arab regimes and other regimes in the region and exploit them. Basically, you look for the fault lines and you tailor your asymmetric approach to exploit them. And you do not necessarily have to use force because often simply threatening, maneuvering, creating pressure, what we call gray area operations, does not require any actual military action or it can be through proxies or forces which are not your own. The asymmetric threats are not things you can bound. We heard a very good discussion of the more immediate ones affecting Iran today. But those are no measure of Iran's capacity. And you are watching major shifts taking place in the weapons and in the technology that will shape asymmetric warfare in the future. One I'll address shortly is the fact that a year ago, we would never have estimated that Iran could carry out the kind of precise focus strikes it did against Saudi oil facilities with the effectiveness it did. And those are essentially not ballistic missiles. They are not, in the classic sense, even cruise missiles. They are unmanned aerial vehicles. And what you have seen is a level of precision which they are seeking to provide for land-based and sea-based ballistic missiles. Not only for the long-range ones, and the ones that show up on all of these maps of missile capability, but a whole range of additional missiles which are not really well described in the open literature, a lot of which, quite frankly, is not particularly accurate and often as misleading as it is helpful. We mentioned mines, and the problem is the limpet mines are crude World War II vintage systems. Iran also has long had smart mines. These are mines you can emplace almost in any shipping channel and they can be programmed to rise up and strike a ship of a given size and type on the basis of its sound profile or other characteristics. You are watching in other parts of the region smart, man-portable anti-tank and anti-armor missiles becoming spread. You have a large volume of very competent man-portable and light anti-aircraft weapons which so far are under control, but may not remain under control even for a few years. So we're talking not only a very unstable region, as John pointed out, but a very wide range of different capabilities, many of which Iran, at least so far, has never had to profile. It is a deeply divided region. I certainly would fault the U.S. in many ways for going to war in 2003 without any plans for what would happen after that. 
But I think that one of the difficulties you have is the divisiveness between the Arab states. You are wasting an immense potential set of military assets because of the divisions within the Gulf Cooperation Council, only some of which are the product of the boycott. You need joint capabilities and integrated capabilities. As John pointed out, the Gulf states may need help for not only Jordan, but other states. And the interaction already you see between what has happened in Libya, Turkey, and Turkey's role in the Gulf warns you that outside players are going to be involved as well as Iran. This is an IISS chart. I'm not responsible for the colors. The thing I would say here, however, is when we talk about what once was the axis of Iranian influence, and you begin to look at it today, and you consider where we were in 2011 and where we are now, it is a very discouraging map, even if you ignore the boycott. And it is one which gives <clears throat> Iran a great freedom of action to threaten, not simply to use military force. We have a network of bases. Let me note that if you ever have a serious military contingency, two of them are absolutely critical to compensating for the lack of coordination, integration, and interoperability between the Arab states. If it was not for the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, or for the U.S. Air Command in Qatar, there would be no ability to carry out effective Arab military operations in the region. That is correctable. People have proposed often within the states ways to correct it, but the progress, quite frankly, has basically been slower than the advances in technology. And if cooperation falls behind the nature of warfare, there is a cost. Now let me say that I have not been exactly happy in watching most of the media coverage of the IRGC. It's fairly obvious that this was not the deputy commander of the military forces that was killed. The Al-Quds force is a small part of the IRGC and the Revolutionary Guards are only part of Iran's asymmetric warfare capability. Mm -hmm. Watching the training of the regular forces, they too are adapting and developing capabilities. And these are capabilities which would be used in more intense forms of conflict. But the basic core of the IRGC is not the Al-Quds force and its operations and capability to carry out asymmetric warfare in a serious conflict with a country like the United States would be shaped more by the Navy, by the Missile Force or Missile Command, and possibly if we ever attempted to move into the land area in Iran, <coughs> by the ground forces and by the besiege. Spending. One thing that you have to be careful about is 
the data here are very uncertain. But one thing that is striking is if you look at the way that budget is defined, the largest expenditure in the defense budget is pensions. That probably doesn't represent the most accurate estimate, but these are DIA declassified figures. They're not mine. You'll also see that the IRGC as a whole is budgeted with more money than the regular forces. <coughs> there are questions about how much of that actually goes to military capability, but it's a very real issue. In addition, somebody should actually look at the way Iran's military forces are structured before focusing on the Al-Quds force. I think there should be a negative Pulitzer Prize for focusing so much on the Revolutionary Guards and inventing so much of the data. I really would find it very difficult to think of a single network that became even approximately able to describe the IRGC, the Iranian National Security Council, or the basic structure of Iran's military forces at any point over the last week. Military modernization. This is again a DIA assessment. One of the keys here is we're not talking about a stable structure. As you'll see in a few minutes, Iran lacks the capability to begin to compete with the Arab states, much less the U.S., in importing advanced weapons and military technology. But in the areas which could be used for asymmetric warfare, every single major area of modernization changes and is changing Iran's capability to use asymmetric warfare or indeed to threaten and carry out gray area operations. Well, let me talk a little about money because I think it is intensely irritating at times to see American officials, and this began under the Obama administration, talk about how little the Arabs are actually doing in their own defense. Those tall bars are all Arab states. <coughs> that very small set of bars next to the Arab contribution, and that's only the Gulf Cooperation Council, is Iran. When you look at burden sharing, you might want to consider what the numbers are. And that's not simply a matter of defense spending. Those tall bars here are Gulf arms imports. The numbers you can see that are blue are imports from the United States. The numbers on the far left and this covers a period that goes back to 2008, and these are declassified U.S. intelligence estimates. That's Iran. So when you talk about why Iran focuses on missiles, asymmetric means, reaches out to exploit other states, if you had the capability to import Iran does, and you had neighbors spending what you see in those tall bars, what would you do? Forward deployed forces, here I think it's critical, I've already mentioned. 
how important it is for the U.S. to maintain its presence, at least now, in Qatar and Bahrain. But the other question here is, what is the prize? And I would suggest to you the prize for Iran right now is Iraq. That small U.S. presence basically is the core of the train and assist effort for the Iraqi regular military forces. If it goes, there is no force to replace it in Europe. There's no source of Arab support that can match it. And there is no ability for that training to integrate with U.S. air power, which has been the critical element in defeating ISIS. You basically are creating a power vacuum, which Iran would almost certainly fill. And that fill would put the rest of the Gulf, and in fact the region, into a far more vulnerable position. U.S. facilities, I think you already have seen maps like this all too often. U.S. deployments, we do have some rough estimates of the force levels. Again, if you look at Qatar, at Bahrain, at the dispersal of U.S. bases and forces, you have a network of capabilities which now are basically remarkably cheap and involve remarkably small personnel levels. Any of you who have seen estimates of the cost of war, and I've heard at meetings in the Gulf, estimates like $7 trillion, to start with, those estimates are well under three. They include Afghanistan, which was not, in my past, part of the Gulf. And they have gone from a peak in 2008 of around $148 billion to something under 20. Now, these are realities which have fundamentally changed the nature of our presence there without creating an absence of capability. Total balances, well, these numbers are a bit complex, and we'll put the presentation up on the web. But the only area where Iran has a lead is essentially in personnel. And a good part of that personnel has no maneuver experience and is designed to fight passively in the event of an invasion which seems remarkably unlikely. With the rest of the numbers, main battle tanks, the Gulf has a very significant lead in modern battle tanks. It has a decisive lead in modern combat aircraft. The IRGC, when you really look at the numbers, is essentially oriented toward asymmetric warfare. It has very little heavy warfare capability, and it's not intended to have. So what you are looking at is, as was pointed out in the presentation you heard earlier, a force designed for asymmetric warfare to compensate for the lack of imports, resources, and competitive capability. Now, you look at these numbers, and again, we will circulate them. I know they're hard to read. But I think the key here is you have a large IRGC, 
vastly larger than the relatively small Al-Quds force, and one which really is designed to fight on a far broader level, as well as to provide defense, grand defense, of Iran. You also have a very wide range of outside forces. Now, I think one thing we might also all do is stop using the word proxy. None of these forces are proxies. All of them have the ability to act independently, their own goals, and are being essentially used or supported by Iran because their goals and structure supports Iran's presence. In a few cases, the ties are so close to Iran that it is sometimes questionable as to how independent they are. But that's not true of the bulk of it. Nuclear forces, just a point. I personally felt the JCPOA was about as effective as you were ever going to get by way of an opening to a nuclear arms agreement. But if you think we somehow ended the ability to carry out a fairly wide range of nuclear research and weapons development, we didn't. The technology Pakistan pioneered in not actually using weapons tests is technology which is now over, well, 18 years old. And basically, no one ever addressed what could be done by way of developing weapons without having nuclear tests for actual high-grade and enriched uranium. Missile forces, remember what I said about precision strikes? You don't need nuclear weapons if you can hit your enemy's critical facilities. You have substituted weapons of mass effectiveness for weapons of mass destruction. This is still an effort very much underway in Iran. There are Israeli experts who feel they've made very significant progress already. Having worked and lived in Iran, I think I am more cautious about how quickly Iran reaches high levels of technological progress. But one other thing, and this will be a question, you, when you have a spectrum of attack, missile defense and ballistic missile defense is not enough. When you can attack low enough, most forms of air defense require specialized terminal defense systems that are located or co-located with the target objective. When you have vast numbers of people moving in and out of the area, you have a technological substitute for space reconnaissance and sophisticated intelligence called an iPhone because you can get the precise GPS coordinates of a high-value piece of equipment simply by having an iPhone present in the immediate vicinity. And having visited some of Iran's research centers, admittedly under the Khatami regime, they're very well aware of how the West looks at this and the technical details and it is a matter of open instruction. Missiles, remember we're talking not about attacking Europe or the United States. 
or parts of Africa below the Sahara, we're talking about Iranian capability to actually hit key targets with effective conventional weapons. Most of these missiles basically would not be able to target a precise target. They would be suitable for striking against a city, a really massive oil facility filled with tanks, or a major base, although in many cases you could fire large numbers of an air base and never hit an aircraft or a runway. The one time that Iran claimed to have done it, they photoshopped and faked the photo. They basically fired the missiles and then they drew an air base over where the missiles hit. Now this is one way to conduct asymmetric warfare because before you laugh, consider what the impact of this kind of campaign is. And for those of you who don't pay attention to this, they're really good if you look at how well Iran propagandized the role of its PMS in Iraq to Iraqis, and how badly we did, you have to realize that asymmetric warfare is communication, not merely military targets. Navy, this is an interesting split. The regular Navy is moved out of the Gulf and is now operating in the Gulf of Oman, in the Red Sea, and in the Indian Ocean. It's broadened its whole role. On the other hand, the Revolutionary Guards Naval Force is designed to fight an asymmetric war inside the Gulf and is increasingly equipping its naval platforms with land attack capabilities, so far limited in range. But again, one problem when you look at missiles is you need to look at missiles and not simply at ballistic missiles. These numbers are impressive, but this is what I mean by the range of naval cruise missiles. Now understand those ranges assume that you are firing from the coast of Iran. In many cases, you can put these missiles on virtually any dock or any other small craft, and you can fire at land targets, and there are in islands or offshore facilities. You're not talking about being bound by any particular rules here. The Straits, remember what I said about smart minds? We've already seen Iran score some significant hits in the Iran-Iraq war. And those straits do not simply go through the Strait of Hormuz. They go deeply out into the Gulf. And there are a wide range of other areas which you can plant smart mines in throughout the entire Gulf that have to have traffic for that facility to export or import. So one thing I would also say, another way to know that you are being thoroughly misinformed is when an expert starts talking about the Strait of Hormuz. No one in the Fifth Fleet sees that as the focus of the way they exercise and train. It is merely one of the most critical points. 
they practice regularly dispersal and operations throughout the entire Iranian Gulf Coast, and increasingly as they step up their ports outside the Strait of Hormuz in the Gulf of Oman, as you've seen from the fact they attacked there already, this is no longer bound in any way by closing the Gulf in the narrow sense you have to shut the door at the Strait of Hormuz. And this is just a map of how Iran is expanding its positions and its naval activities within the region. Uh, this is one, something, again, a DIA map. And I think one thing that we really need to do is pay attention to what the U.S. is actually saying officially about the threat. Now, as someone outside government, I say this with great reservations because being outside government, you should really only listen to me. Yeah. But you might, just, or for example, my colleagues, but you might just want to look at the DIA analysis or some of the other material the government is actually providing. Air and Air Defense Forces. I was in Iran at the embassy in the early 70s. And an awful lot of the Iranian Air Force is what was bought then. Now, as you may have noticed, I've aged a little bit. But in comparison, fighter planes age in dog years. And there's only so much you can do with an F-4, an F-5, or even a crude export version of a MiG-29 or SU-24. Those air bases are certainly striking, but this is a map from an Iranian publication showing their view of the threat to them. And it's rather striking to see that when you look at this, the Arab air forces, which have precision strike missiles with air-launched ranges of 150 kilometers in some cases, are actually very capable. And in this area, the expertise of many of the Gulf Air Forces is quite good against known fixed targets. Numbers that fall bar is the GCC. The bar on the far left is Iran. But only about 70% of that could be operated at most for more than a few days. And about 60% to 70% is virtually obsolescent. That's one of the reasons why you're not going to see Iran give up its missiles or give up its UAVs because that's the core of its actual ability not only to attack but to defend. You are not going to see an arms control agreement which effectively surrenders your most important military capability. Not under this regime, anyway. One critical problem up till about last year was that their surface-to-air missiles and radar capabilities also basically dated back more or less to the time that I was in Iran in the early 70s, give or take some other not particularly modern Chinese systems. That's changed. The S-300 is in the process of delivery. Those are the added circles you see being added 
on the left side. If Russia sells them the S-400, this is the kind of capability and range that system would have as its maximum, that's relatively high <coughs> range, if it was deployed near the border area. Their system is vulnerable. It is critically dependent on a few radars. This is something they also are replacing and changing. At least some press links indicate this is one of the options we did not choose to exercise earlier in 2019 as a way of showing Iran that we could cripple a good part of its defenses and make them vulnerable to airstrikes by stealth aircraft. But certainly it's going to take them years to fix this. Land forces, I don't think it's much point in dragging you through this. The truth of the matter is they don't train for offensive warfare. They don't have logistics support for offensive warfare. They are oriented almost exclusively <coughs> to defense. If they gain access to Iraq, they may change. But at this point in time, that's not the major threat. So let me just conclude with one other point. In the real world, military analysis requires you to not only look at a given side's attack capability and military forces, but its vulnerability. And one of the oddities of the Arab Gulf is in some ways it has one of the most vulnerable target mixes in the world. There basically is no reserve to attacks on some of the desalination plants. If you hit them, the city is without water in about three days. Now, in frankness, Iran has its own vulnerability. If you hit water purification plants in major Iranian cities with precision strikes, you can do similar damage. If you attack power grids, as we did in Iraq in 1991, a lack of electric power either at the height of the summer or the worst of the winter in Iran basically has some pretty dramatic civil effects. The problem here is what are you escalating against? And very often, when you look at people doing analysis here, they never look at the target vulnerability. One of the others is that in many cases, for a variety of reasons throughout this region, you have one-of-a-kind critical components. There's a kind of a prestige struggle, even in petroleum facilities. You know, you have to have the best and the latest so you fabricate maybe before. And there's no immediate supply of that component, and it can take you four to six months or longer to replace it. This is an issue, incidentally, which we were rather foolish in publicizing in some depth back in the late 70s. Uh, it's not exactly the kind of thing that anybody in the region doesn't understand. And as for petroleum facilities, well, there are a lot of them. And a lot of them, as you look here, are offshore. 
And there's a reason why you create the ability to use small craft to attack land targets. Because if the land target is a key offshore oil facility, it can be much more difficult to protect. I guess the last point I would make is this. One thing I've tried to stress to you is this is changing. There is no static pattern here. There's no clear prospect that we're going to terminate the level of tension or even the level of low-level <coughs> conflict and asymmetric incidents in this region. You're not going to solve it by defeating one terrorist movement's sort of protostate, like ISIS. You're not going to resolve it by having what might be a useful compromise in dealing with Iran and the Arab states that might for a while provide security. You can focus on Iran today, but as you look at civil wars, you have to realize that some of the civil wars, like the ones in Syria, have already shown that states can attack population centers and that you can put really smart arms into the hands of other countries, of non-state actors. And in this case, Libya and Syria are both examples. <coughs> I would say that you have, if you're going to focus on asymmetric warfare, and even if you're in your 30s, a lifetime career. So I would just encourage all of you who are looking for a job or a specialization, here's the way to go. Council puts out uh, the foremost uh, journal uh, dealing with uh, Arab-U.S. relations and uh, areas that affect Arab-U.S. relations that are not the United States and not Arabs, uh, but others, Israel, Iran, Turkey, Afghanistan, uh, for example. <laughs> Uh, but Tom Mater has lived in the region, as all of us have up here in front of you, at some length. And he's written the seminal piece, it's a book, on three islands uh, just south and west of the Straits of Hormuz. Abu Musa, and Greater Tum, and Smaller Tum. Uh, Without getting down too far in the weeds, uh, Russell Kamer uh, has sovereignty over the greater and the smaller Tun, or Tanab, and the Emirate of Sharjah uh, over Abu Musa. And these were seized um, December the 1st of 1971. <coughs> 
by the uh, Navy of the Shah of Iran. And um, to give you an idea of how heavy-handed it was seen, um, the ship that uh, seized the smaller Tanab Island uh, was larger than the island itself. Uh, his book is worth reading on this. Um, he was in Abu Dhabi at the time at a first-rate research center, the Emirates Center for Strategic Studies and Research. <clears throat> and he's been following Iran and the Iran Almanac, which he can explain uh, better than I, uh, for the last two decades. I'll try to take only about five minutes or seven because we need to leave time for questions and answers. And I was asked not to come with a prepared <coughs> presentation, but to comment on the presentations you just heard. Uh, my first um, comment is that um, we need a co coherent policy for Iran. We need a coherent strategy. We don't have one. Um, I agree with Tony that uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was a good agreement, and I do think it was a mistake to leave it, because it has, um, uh, not because it resolved all the issues that are outstanding with Iran, it clearly did not, and we needed a strategy to deal with them, and we failed to develop one. But uh, because it, it limited Iran's capacity in meaningful ways, and leaving it has led to uh, an escalation of the uh, conflicts that we have with Iran and has led, I think, to um, the current situation we're in. And I um, am struck by, by something that David said, which is that Iran likes to operate at a level that is um, below the level that is going to get a lot of attention here. Um, and that means that we have um, not responded very effectively to any of the things that they've done. We didn't respond to uh, some of the attacks that were made against tankers <coughs> earlier this year. We didn't respond to um, the attack on the Saudi oil installations which, as, as Tony said, did demonstrate um, that their, their missile forces are, uh, these were cruise missiles and drones, but they're, they're more effective than they were, as well as the, the ballistic missiles that they used the other day are, are more, uh, more accurate than they were 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, there were a number of attacks against Iraqi military installations over the last few months that we hadn't responded to. So, um, we, and, and David was talking about how uh, they exploit the fact that 
in a democratic society, we, we're going to have trouble reaching agreement on what to do about it. And you can see that right now. You can see that right now. That um, if you think there was some merit in, in what the United States did, um, it clearly has led to a, um, a discussion in the Congress about, about uh, limiting the president's abilities. Um, there are downsides to what, to what has been done. There are downsides, and Tony's pointed them out. Um, we may actually find ourselves being pushed out of Iraq if we do, um, and no one can replace us. That means uh, that Iran gains more advantage. And if Iran gains more advantage in Iraq, then it's, it's um, Shia Crescent extending from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, into Lebanon and the Mediterranean, and all the <coughs> border is, is enhanced. And that's, that's been their objective. That's why they've been able to develop, I won't call them proxy forces anymore, but um, friendly forces that they can support, sometimes direct, and that um, may act independently at times, and they may act, may act independently now. That they may not be bound by, you know, Iran's decision or statement that this is a, a, a sufficient proportional response to the killing of Soleimani. So um, I don't know what the answer is, but the executive and the Congress have to get together and have to develop a coherent policy and a coherent strategy for limiting Iran's nuclear <coughs> program and trying to limit Iran's uh, expansion of influence through the, throughout the Arab world, through the Shia Crescent, and south of Saudi Arabia and Yemen, which alarms Saudi Arabia because it looks as if it's being encircled by an Iranian-supported Shia circle. Um, asymmetric capabilities, I, I think, um, I think since we don't have a resolution of the, of the issues, and since we um, are imposing new economic sanctions, um, which are hurting Iran very much, I think you can expect Iran to continue um, the same kinds of asymmetric capabilities that it's been using. Um, what can I say about them that hasn't been said? Um, um, on the question of proxies, um, there's some, I think, there's some disagreement, for example, about whether Iran um, directed the Hezbollah to take Israeli soldiers hostage in 2006, or whether it was uh, unaware and angry about it. So um, that's an interesting question to be explored. But Iran can at times direct them, and at times they'll act on their own. Um, I'm, I was glad that I, that I think both Dave, David and, and, and uh, Tony mentioned that Iran um, does support groups inside Bahrain, because that's often neglected. <coughs> There's a lot of attention to the, the heavy hand that Bahrain exercises over you know, its population, but, but um, you know, there have been um, uh, groups inside Bahrain that have been supported, trained, financed by Iran and that have received weapons from Iran and that have used the weapons to kill security forces and their intention is to overthrow the regime. 
So uh, they can use it as forces all over the region. Um, I guess um, we, nobody, I don't think anybody mentioned the use of IEDs uh, and EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, which Soleimani helped uh, Iraqi Shia militias get in 2005, 6, and 7, which killed American servicemen. That's something that can be done again. And I guess I'll close by saying um, that uh, John mentioned a book, and I've written two on this, but um, on Iran, but uh, they have a lot of maritime capabilities. Um, the IRGC has a naval unit. They have uh, anti-ship uh, weapons that can be fired from the air or from the land or from fast attack craft that they have in the Gulf. They have submarines that have torpedo laying, uh, torpedo, torpedoes and mine laying capacity. They've got um, shore batteries. They've got them on islands in the Gulf. They, can, they, they, uh, they have small boats that can swarm our naval vessels. Um, they have mine laying capabilities, as I said, uh, which we discovered in 1986, 1987, 1988, when we had to reflag ships and escort convoys. There is a lot of damage that they can do. In the north of the Gulf, as you approach the Straits, Tony said, it's not just the Strait itself, and in the Gulf of Oman outside. Uh, so. There are many things Iran can continue doing that are going to um, complicate life for our partners. And our partners are going to ask themselves, as they did when the Saudi oil inspirations were hit, what is the United States going to do about this? You know, what is the nature of their commitment to us? And Congress and the executive need to answer that question, I think. So I'll leave time for questions now. I guess if we can take the uh, <coughs> questions uh, from the uh, tables here rather than walk to the lecture there. We have more questions. We can take the questions here as we sit, and none of the speakers need uh, walk through the um, uh, lectern as such. We have more questions here than we have people in the audience. Don't know how that happened. Um, and also more questions than we have time responsibly to devote to them. But we have 35 minutes, right, Patrick? 20 minutes, all right. Um, on my side. Uh, briefly, I think um, Colonel DeRoche mentioned uh, that the taking of the hostages uh, precipitated or um, was the stimulus for the founding of the U.S. Central Command, <coughs> just so that one doesn't walk out of here uh, taking that as fact. <coughs> no, it was much earlier, the prodding, the stimulus. Um, when the Soviet Union moved into Afghanistan, uh, that uh, triggered a response by President Carter and Sultan Qaboos of Oman, and people like Norman Schwarzkopf, Pierre Skelly, 
and others uh, came in that wake. Uh, so the seizure of the hostages did not occur till the till the fall of 1979. Uh, Ma'am, sir, can we have your attention, please? Thank you. With regard to NATO and Europe and the president's call and his remarks for greater involvement uh, by NATO. How realistic is that, given that there have been several previous occasions, the Barcelona Dialogue and elsewhere, where the Europeans were willing, in many cases, and wanting, in numerous cases, to have a more prominent role in the region. Uh, but many on our side realized that, hmm, in one way they would be welcomed, in another way they would not receive them as perhaps taking away some of their influence, some of their control, some of their markets, greater access to intelligence, training um, exercises, maneuvers and the like. Uh, so we've been down that road before. And here it is implied that uh, we ought to go down that road again. Uh, so uh, we would welcome a, a response on that front, Tony. And because of my work sitting on the sanctions committee, um, it, it couldn't be more obvious how eager numerous European countries and their corporations are to have access to the Iranian market. Uh, more than 300 MOUs have been um, initialed but not one of them has been uh, implemented. And it has to do not so much with the Department of State, the White House, or the Pentagon, but rather the Treasury. Uh, the, the Treasury has been weaponized uh, to have a major impact on our relationship uh, in the region. And when it came time for these uh, MOUs to be translated into actual projects on the ground, uh, we sent out word to the banks, do not finance any of those arrangements, and send the word to those who initial the memorandums of understanding that if you defy our strategic goals and policies of containing, isolating, sanctioning Iran increasingly, uh, this will not be cost-free for you. Uh, your requests for renewal of licenses, access to American uh, markets, privilege status, and these arrangements, uh, we'll put them at the bottom of the pile. And we'll get to them when we can. And we'll wish you well and, and best of luck. Uh, so, in essence, you have to choose the Iranian market of 90 million of the American market of what, 335 billion. No uh, EU country has been yet willing to defy that. So the question is how realistic is that? How might it occur? Uh, how much, if at all, would it improve a situation where, despite the administration saying we're all safer, it's questionable whether anybody feels uh, safer. 
In terms of the Iranian-Iraq aspect, I've been privileged to be present as an observer at all of the ministerial and heads of state summits of the Gulf Cooperation Council since uh, its inception. And after 2003, 2000, 2004, and five, sort of the standing joke, but no one really laughed, was the United States attacked Iraq in Iran won without firing a single bullet or shedding a single drop of blood. And search the uh, documents in the history books as you may and will. It'll be hard pressed to find another example in history where two countries that demonized each other to the extent that has been the case in this instance, uh, the more powerful country <coughs> gave the less powerful country a gift of this magnitude. Um, so I'll stop here and ask if uh, Tony and Tom want to elaborate on what they haven't addressed um, for a few minutes, and then I'll shoot the questions in sort of groups of four or five and then you can pick and choose which ones you want to respond to and how long you want to respond to. Want to have first crack at the NATO one, uh, Tony? You know, as a former member of the NATO International Staff, I found this to be a fascinating debate in general. First, NATO doesn't do anything. Individual countries do. The two countries which have the longest history of power projection France is dependent on us basically to carry out fairly limited counterterrorism activities south of the Sahara, partly because it faces all kinds of power projection and transport lines. It certainly has very capable forces, but when you talk about replacing or is distinguished from supplementing us, it doesn't have the capabilities to manage large-scale naval warfare, or to handle large-scale air operations in this region, and its capabilities are going to continue to decline. Britain has, to some extent, funded its navy at the expense of its air force, and more strikingly, at the expense of its ground force. Once again, the problem is a little like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, the United States is very different from European countries. It has more money. Uh, that's not a measure of capability. It's a measure of money. And so I think that this is a remarkably unrealistic set of goals, particularly if you are simultaneously saying you need to focus on Russia in NATO at a point when more than half the countries don't meet this sort of meaningless 2% of GDP goal, but what really is more important is they can't modernize their air fleet, their armor fleet, or properly modernize their navies. Uh, we have to get our priorities straight and our capabilities straight, and here you can certainly get people to do more to a point. But remember that one of the effects of our recent strikes was to have NATO leave Iraq. One of the impacts of our activities in Afghanistan may well be to find 
NATO countries to be extremely reluctant to repeat some of those commitments anywhere else. And as it stands, if you want to project power, you're going to have to do it. I was involved only indirectly in the 1991 campaign, but the problem was, A, a lot of our NATO allies then did not have anything like our precision strike capability. They have advanced, but we've advanced more, and they do not have yet stealth capabilities. And basically because of the real-world problems in training, for many countries, every time a NATO country flew a sortie, we had to give up two U.S. sorties to handle the air management and battle planning. So a certain amount of realism here would have been very desirable, and somewhere someone might start actually briefing our president on what the hell our policies really are and what NATO's capabilities are by country. Thank you, Tony. Tom, if you don't have a comment. Well, the, only thing, the, the only question. thing I would say would be, um, uh, I, I think Tony spoke about the military capabilities, but from a political perspective, uh, I don't think they're on board with our policy. <coughs> and so they're going to be reluctant, in my view, to get more deeply engaged with us. As, as we go forward. They, they didn't uh, appreciate our withdrawal from the nuclear agreement that they worked so hard to construct. Um, going back, you know, even beyond that, um, they didn't support our invasion of Iraq in 2003, Branston, for example. So um, what has transpired since then, you know, um, is on us, and I, and I, I don't, don't know that they're going to want to Okay, those are excellent uh, additional points. Uh, several questions focus on Oman and the Homo Strait and Oman being an outlier among the uh, DCC countries on uh, various issues pertaining to Iran. But um, Australia has been to Oman 54 times. Um, since uh, Sultan Qaboos came to power, and its relationship with Iran <coughs> simply needs to be put under the microscope. Uh, Iranians died for Oman. Uh, Iranian blood is mixed with uh, Omani blood. From 1965 to 75, you had the longest civilian insurrection anywhere in modern Arabia. And no Arab country made the defining difference in defeating the guerrillas. Uh, no country did more than Iran. <coughs> and so there's no such comparable relationship historically or otherwise between any of the other GCC countries and Iran. Uh, so we need to widen our prisms and uh, lenses uh, for our background <coughs> and perspectives. How could asking you, Tony, and asking you, Tom, the Strait of Hormuz be blocked, if it could be blocked, and the implications of it uh, 
views, but everyone here would like to hear your views. Well, I think that when you talk about blocked, that's not going to happen. Can you create a sufficiently high risk so somebody running essentially a tanker or a cargo vessel is not going to enter or will be blocked from given ports or areas? And it doesn't have to be the straits. You can pick an individual Gulf country and essentially threaten it. You do have smart lines. You do, as Tom pointed out, not only have the Navy capabilities, but they have a very wide capability to use anti-ship missiles that are land-based. Air might be more problematic because any aircraft launching an anti-ship missile in a narrow area is extremely <coughs> detectable and vulnerable. So if you're going to use air power, you probably don't want to use it at the Straits, particularly given the anti-ship missiles. But the key question here is essentially who is it that's going to take a private ship through the Straits or into a high-threat area, particularly if there's no desperate reason to do it? And you'd have to be pretty damn desperate as a captain to worry about some country's oil flows. Uh, the other issue that I think you have to realize is that not every ship or every navy has the capability to conduct any meaningful form of missile defense. And there are a number of Gulf surface combat ships on the Arab side, which frankly shouldn't be there, and are uniquely vulnerable to trying to fight any missile threat. Some not because they lack equipment, but they have so much equipment it's almost a fightable from a command and control position. Uh, there's a certain amount of glitz you can put into combat, but when you are more interested in game plating than fighting, you have a real problem. That's a serious issue in general for Gulf navies, particularly because they don't have mine warfare capabilities. The one country that has adequate naval maritime surveillance capability doesn't really use it. So targeting lots of small vessels is a major problem. And that creates a level of vulnerability which shouldn't exist, but at least so far it does. Tony, I'm in, uh, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Tony said a lot of it. Um, uh, they've got a lot of small craft, you know, Boston whalers, bog hammers that can, that can swarm uh, naval vessels and merchant vessels. They've got fast attack craft that carry anti-ship missiles on the fast attack craft, so they're moving around, they're harder to target. Um, They've got drones, um, so uh, and they've got mines, um, uh, and they've got submarines with torpedoes. So they can hit shipping. Um, they can cause people, they can cause insurance rates to go way up, and uh, cause people to choose not to go in. We have capabilities too. Um, uh, you know, we. Um, <laughs> we demonstrated them in the in the Gulf in 
you know, during the tank of war in the, in the mid-1980s, uh, and we've improved them. And, um, but you know, they can do a lot of damage and <coughs> slow things down. And, they, and of course, that means the price of oil is going to go up. Yes, and in addition to the psychological uh, blockade, just the sheer announcement that had the ring and tone thematic credibility uh, that we have mined the Straits uh, extensively in the last 24 hours uh, would compel all ship captains to call <coughs> headquarters, what should I do? And uh, when I've been there, this has happened, uh, they're reluctant to go through uh, to call the Iranian bluff <coughs> and lawyers of London uh, loves situations like that. It uh, can clean the clocks of various uh, freights of oil tankers that want to traverse those waters. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, it's wrong for people to perceive the area around the Hormuz Strait as shared by Iran and Oman. Uh, I don't buy that. All of the traffic goes through Oman's waters, not Iran's. There's a two mile wide uh, incoming lane. It's been well staked out and everybody abides by. There's another two mile wide lane for uh, vessels exiting the Gulf. And then there's a third two mile wide uh, zone that's in between the two uh, to separate the two and uh, foreclose the possibility of an accident there. Uh, so Iran is not uh, the captain or the guardian of the gate uh, with regard to the home of whose area. It's, uh, Iran is not, it's, it's Oman. Please um, address uh, Russia's role and influence and impact. Uh, given they still not fully understood or fully aware and appreciated role of Mr. Putin in this uh, matrix with President Trump. The old adage about Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, uh, wanting to have access to a warm water port and Iran being the desired one has never yet materialized. Um, Tony and Tom want to take on that and add China to the um, menu. Well, first, there's a whole academic literature that that particular Russian desire for a warm water port never existed. Uh, <clears throat> one has to be careful. It's like the fact that may you live in interesting times. The Chinese insist is not a Chinese curse. Uh, people, but more seriously, I think that uh, when you talk about Russia, you're talking about a petro-state that if it can find a way to gain influence and leverage in military and strategic terms, potentially can gain leverage economically as well. They have been very aggressive in marketing weapons. Countries like Iraq are buying. There's a report which just came out, and it is somewhat limited in coverage, but from the State Department, 
Cold War military expenditures and arms transfers. And it does show a rise. What it doesn't show is the level of Russian effort. Uh, I think that we could almost count on Russia being careful if they have not transferred major offensive weapons to Iran. The two systems that count that they have transferred since some limited deliveries of export versions of fighters are the S-300 and a dedicated system which is designed to fight cruise missiles, which Iran has bought in relatively small numbers, I suspect because of its money problem. A S-400 sale has been attempted for the, at least, Qatar, uh, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. I think all three are concerned if they bought one, uh, they would find themselves in trouble with the U.S. over the issue, as Turkey did. And there are questions about how honest the Russians have been about talking about S-400 specifications. But I don't see any reason why the Russians should be the only country in the world to be honest about describing missile defense. It seems unfair. China is a different story. It has a major facility in Djibouti that's expanding. It has created a port. It is creating ports which have military potential along the Indian Ocean coast, obviously not in India, but to the uh, east and to the west of India. It has stepped up its activities in terms of naval deployments and exercises in the region. And the reasons are fairly obvious. Even though they now have some pipelines for energy from Russia, they are critically dependent on the flow of oil through the Straits of Malacca or around it to China. And if they could displace the United States, uh, this would give them a really major strategic advantage as well as help ensure their flow of energy. And again, I mentioned that paper, John, that talks about why we should stay in the Gulf. Yes. If you look in that, you'll see some of the maps and data on just how dependent China is. And that's probably one of the greatest single points of strategic leverage the United States has today. Uh, probably, in some ways, there's a more concern to China directly than the problem of our current level of sanctions. Again, Tony said a lot, but I, mean, I, I think I would sum it up by saying, you know, they, um, they make the point of capitalizing on every mistake we make. And we make a lot of them. So our influence, you know, is, is diminishing and theirs is increasing in the region. Um, they, I, I note that they did a joint naval exercise with Iran in December in the Gulf of Oman. Um, I doubt that they want to get involved in, you know, any kind of shooting that involves the United States. But they are, they are filling vacuums that we are leaving. Last time I was in Abu Dhabi was, I think, was uh, 
might have been October, uh, and Putin was there. They are all over, and um, and we are facilitating them. I'm going to read the remaining uh, questions that is chair, I think, uh, worth pondering. And we won't have an opportunity to answer them all, but I'm going to read them. And if you have a pithy uh, short-term response to them, fine. If there isn't time, uh, just noting the substance of these questions should be food for thought. Even if the U.S. staves off a direct conflict with Iran, how realistic is it that the Israelis will continue to hold back against striking Iran in one way or another? No one has spoken about the war of ideas uh, in terms of focus and commentary in the media and uh, our governments and other governments concerning the war of ideas. Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, thrived on, on ideas, and uh, you can have uh, all kinds of violence, but you can have rhetorical violence as well. Uh, so how do we deal with the war of ideas, and are we, are we winning or losing? Uh, what are the odds of the Islamic Republic imploding under the additional maximum pressure campaign? Um, do, this one relates to the impeachment there, um, to what degree do you give any credence to the uh, idea that uh, triggering a crisis with Iran um, is linked to uh, what would be understood as President of Trump's desire uh, to distract attention to another issue that would suck all the air out of the foreign relations uh, rooms and mobilize domestic opinion uh, in Iran as well against uh, U.S. aggression and deflect the um, domestic protests that were taking place in Iran up until a few weeks ago. Uh, but now have been replaced by a degree of unity that wasn't there before, however ephemeral that might be. Uh, how would any of you characterize current U.S. policy toward Iran? And I think Tony has addressed it, the, the issue about uh, Middle East oil and, and downward dependence on it, but others accelerated dependence upon it there. <laughs> How is it that the missile attack on Abqaiq launched from north or western Iran flew the entire distance and went unnoticed by the U.S. Navy, the British Navy, or U.S. surveillance intelligence uh, uh, technology, which was touted and the president's uh, speech is having been so effective in saving the lives of American armed forces personnel at the two bases in Iraq. If it was so good to detect incoming missiles there, what happened in the case of Saudi Arabia and Abqaiq? And what does this do, likely, 
to the American Aerospace <laughs> and Defense Industry, which tells that we can protect you, we can defend you. Uh, all we need is your signature on a check for quite a few billion dollars. <laughs> Want to take on any of those, either of you? Well, let me begin. First, the Israelis haven't come back. They have been attacking targets supported by Iran and operated in Syria. Uh, I think the issue for Israel is that it is not probably going to get involved in Gulf affairs unless Iran moves toward a targetable nuclear option. It might behave very differently if Iran is too active in Syria, if Syria builds up too much capability, or if Iran develops the same kind of precision strike capabilities <coughs> to reach Israel that it's seeking to deal with Arab targets. But that assumes that you can carry out a strike, that you know where the missiles are, and I think what you have to say is, I don't think Israel is going to go out and just randomly strike. It's going to need a very clear provocation, and it's going to tailor its strikes to attempt to deter or contain. The war of ideas, uh, I don't see any surveys that indicate that AQ or ISIS did thrive. You know, when you really look at the percentages of people who were volunteers, or who show up on polls as supporting extremism, you know, for all the occasional criticism of civilizations, and you compare it to the kind of percentages you saw after World War I in Europe of extremists, it would seem that the Arabs aren't really very good at it. And the polls are actually relatively moderate compared to similar patterns in the West. I do think it is true that you have a highly sophisticated capability to reach a certain type of person inside and outside the Arab world on behalf of these extremist movements. There have been analyses of Iran's capability to reach out and propagandize and looking at some of those studies, and they've not been, I think, popularly released, Iran's done a very good job of what we call information warfare. And it has had an impact. Uh, but again, one problem is often what you're doing is you're preaching to your own sectarian group or to the converted. Uh, on the impeachment issue, I regret to say that neither the president nor the Speaker of the House asked me for advice on this, so I can't really comment. Uh, U.S. policy towards Iran, I think Tom made the most critical point, so I'll let him elucidate that and just finish with the fact that missiles on FK, there is no such thing as universal sensor coverage except in wartime. You were focused, and the Saudis had deployed at the expense of covering the globe to deal with Yemen. But low flyers, and these were very low flyers, require a airborne presence 
And that presence has to be able to detect a very small comparative system. And in this case, we don't fly those missions. Uh, we fly them if we have to in an emergency, but they're expensive. Providing sensor coverage on a broad level is a very, very high cost item. Our ISNR missions, for example, against Iraq, cost more than our strike missions did, simply to get that kind of area coverage. So as long as you have Arab allies that don't use the sensor capabilities to deal with this type of system by flying their own missions, uh, you're going to have gaps. And let me also say, when it comes down to buying missile defenses at this point in time, we really don't have, as yet, although Saudi Arabia and the UAE have looked at this issue, systems deployed to deal with the full range of Iranian ballistic missiles, and unlike Iran, no Arab country has yet bought dedicated defenses that are really capable of dealing with UAVs or cruise missiles. Again, uh, one of the interesting aspects is that Saudi Arabia has a remarkable spectrum of modern weapons. The ones that would do the best job of low altitude coverage are roughly the same age as many of Iran's U.S. fighters. Mm -hmm. Tom? Uh, on the question of Israel, I, I could point to what Israel's done in the past. Israel's you know, tried to persuade the United States to take action. I would expect them to try that again if they felt that Iran was making progress in its nuclear program. Israel has uh, cooperated with us in cyber attacks on Iranian nuclear program, and Israel has assassinated Iranian nuclear scientists, and all those things could be done again if they, if they start making discernible progress toward you know, high-enriched uranium and all of that. <coughs> on, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the military technology the way Tony does. Uh, I, I know that we evidently saw the, the Iranians loading the ballistic missiles they fired a few days ago. Uh, we saw that we saw it, uh, uh, and um, uh, we waited for them to fire them. <coughs> we took force protection measures. I don't know if we can see a cruise missile when it's launched. They are. They do fly close, close to the sea level and the Earth's terrain, so they're very hard to detect. That was cruise missiles used against Saudi oil out of Cape. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. On the um, Israel factor, I don't see it going away if you want to use the term that's often abused, but it's shorthand <coughs> for political speak. The neoconservatives, uh, they are very much um, present in the White House and have longed to see regime change in Tehran, uh, even in the lead up to uh, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, there were loud voices significantly placed 
that uh, would claim and meetings uh, participated in. We've got it all wrong. And we've got it upside down and inside out and backwards. We should be invading Iran first. Iraq can come later. Uh, but Cheney was adamant that Iraq uh, would go first. So from an Israeli perspective, yes, Tony was right about uh, nuclear-linked issues and Syria-linked issues. One could add Gaza-linked issues and Lebanon-linked uh, uh, issues. Um, but the wish at the strategic level from an Israeli perspective to divert attention, to distract, uh, to have the American agenda focus not on curbing settlements or colonies or further uh, building, expanding embassies in Jerusalem and uh, taking the place of the consulate. Uh, one can, from my perspective, see that momentum not ceasing, uh, but continuing. It certainly worked in 1982 when Israel invaded Lebanon. Uh, we were on a roll and a run, so to speak, having achieved Camp David under President Carter and were focusing next on Jerusalem and the West Bank primarily, and the Israelis said, over a dead body, so to speak, I remember being at one meeting in the early January where the briefer said they were going to do it between April 15th and June 15th. And we were half a dozen and all of us said, who is they and what's it? And the briefer said the Israelis will invade Lebanon between April 15th and June 15th. And all of us were aghast and said, why would they do that? The ceasefire is holding. Held straight for seven months now, the longest in recent memory. Uh, why would they do that? And the answer was because they want to change the agenda and America's priorities. They do not want us to focus on Jerusalem and the West Bank. Anything um, uh, apart from those issues will do. <coughs> and since then, because that worked, uh, while we were in Lebanon, one way or the other, for 19 straight years, um, Sharon double, treble, quadruple, quintuple, the number of settlements in the uh, occupied territories. So a diversion to the east, a distraction to the east, New Zealand will do, uh, would find anything involving the United States and Iran sucking all of the air out of the room, all of the energy, all of the prioritizations. Um, this is my take on that. On the war of ideas, uh, I don't know how many have read Franz Fanon's works, uh, the, the Wretched of the Earth, or La Dame de la Terre, or more the human alert. It's as applicable in the case of Iraq uh, as it was in the case of the last days of Algeria. Um, since 2003, Iraq has lost its effective national sovereignty, its uh, political independence, considerable degree of its territorial integrity, 
These are the three criteria for admission of most countries into the United Nations. Iraq had all three before then. It has none of them since then. And the four pillars of the U.S. government and constitution to keep people safe, to defend against external uh, threats, uh, to have a reasonable standard of living, to be able to meet a cost of living, and not have your economy go backwards. And lastly, the administration of an effective system of civil justice. All, thing, all four of those things went away to what we did to Iraq, what we did. So Iran's got a powerful case siding with those in Iraq who want to regain that which was taken from them. And don't discount dignity. Don't discount humiliation. Don't discount that one-sixth of Iraq's population uh, came up on the list of the wounded, uh, the killed, and the displaced. Two million external refugees, two million internal displaced people. Iraq's population then was 24 million. That's 4 million. The equivalent in American terms would be we were invaded and 60 million were made refugees or internally displaced. So on the war of ideas, uh, Iran has got a leg up, so to speak, in terms of the emotionality of it and what they would claim is the morality of it. Tony. Well, I just, I noticed I didn't talk about the implosion of the Islamic Republic. Uh, let me say that I have never seen an area where we can do a worse job of being able to predict the future. Mm -hmm. I spent a rather long time in the U.S. government reading such predictions, uh, the extent to which many of them were wrong until actually all the events took place that essentially catalyzed the implosion. Uh, the only thing that was worse were our psychological profiles of leaders, which sometimes looked a little like a soap opera. The one comment I'd also make, and here I think, as Americans we often assume that something implodes, it's going to get better. You know, one of our cultural biases is we're one of the few countries in the world that actually had a successful revolution. Almost everybody had a revolution, and things got worse, at least for a while. And I still remember when 2011 began, and we were all talking about Arab, Arab Springs in the West. A conference in London, a Kuwaiti banker came in the next morning, having bought all of us a copy of the History of Europe in 1848, and pointed out there wasn't a single revolution it hadn't made things worse. Uh, when it implodes, then what? Uh, basically speaking, one assumes that the entire economy collapses or has already collapsed. I have not seen any signs of a meaningful middle class structure to inherit or govern. So unless it is something where you can transition to the moderates, such as they are, that already exist, it just doesn't strike me as necessarily a goal. And you mentioned neocons. It's been a long time since I've heard anybody say that we were at the end of history 
and inevitably every regime was going to become liberal, democratic, and capitalist. Fukuyama. Uh, well, and let's not forget the number of people who believed in globalism, which in many ways was the flat earth theory. I mean, because it had to be the flat earth theory. How could you really have a rising tide lift all the boats unless you had a flat earth? Please join me in thanking these. Oh,